Welcome to the 35th episode of the New Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Saniel, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures Podcast to help people who are starting new climate initiatives to learn from existing practitioners. Today, we're going to talk about a very important topic. A lot of us feel that climate change is going to affect the idyllic islands and they really cannot do anything about it, but you can. And to discuss that, our guest for today is Mr. Yuan Mendes, who has been a consultant in the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change of the Seychelles and has worked very closely on an adaptation fund project implementation. Welcome, Yuan. Good morning, Tenjoy. Good morning yeah. to you as well. Thank you for coming. Let's start by Yuan by setting the context. As I said, in general, people associate the small allied states with catastrophic climate change. Can you help us understand the specific issues facing Seychelles? Yes, so Seychelles is an archipelago in the Western Indian Ocean, just a little bit below the equator. So it's in the southern hemisphere, but it's by its position near the equator, it makes it special in terms of it's outside the tropical cyclone belt. Normally, it doesn't be affected by cyclones. But the intensity of the climate change in the region make it that sometimes cyclone belt uh, is going a bit upper and so you have some more cyclone effect in the Seychelles now. In the other side also, because it's a small island state, it's really dependent on the sea level in terms of the land, uh, access to land. So they have a lot of different issues regarding to sea level rise. So in general, uh, Seychelles is really affected by intensity of rain because it's a country nearby the equator. So it's really generously fed by rain. And sometimes rain, when it's too much, it's creating issues of flooding. And because uh, of the sea level rise, also you have another issue of flooding coming from the sea. And when it's heavily rainfall, you are squeezed between the sea level when it's high tide and also storm and the intensity of rain. So the, the real issue in terms of climate in Seychelles is really the rainfall. What about the salinization? So the salinization also it's an issue coming slowly, slowly, gradually by the level of the sea rising, but it's affecting on a local context several farming activities which are happening on the coast because it's affecting the storage of the groundwater. The water on the coastline is being contaminated by a salt water intrusion. So you have slowly also a salinization of the flatland. But Seychelles is a, is a mountainous granitic island, so you have many access to fresh water. So it's not really an issue. It can be really tackled easily because you have access to many, many rivers. And, and as I said, uh, there's a lot of rainfall annually. Seychelles is classified as in the top 20 uh, country in the world in terms of rainfall, just after Bangladesh. It's not a country really that would be affected by drought, by lack of rain. They're more affected by excess of rain. And to go to this impact, obviously flooding is an impact, but uh, I understand in that project, you're also dealing with the issue of the other problem, water security, right? And then there were fires. So there is a range of impacts. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, the thing is you have a, a climate season in the region and between December and January, you have a lot of rainfall. But then after, all along the year, you don't have that many rains, and so you have an issue of to access to water all year long. And the issue of water security also come along with the issue of soil erosion, because a lot of development also 
uh, impact on the quality of the water resource. And uh, also because of extended droughts in the time of July, August, when it's the southern monsoon, especially on, a, on one island, which is uh, and prone to fires because they are the, the extended drought, this kind of vegetation there, which is the, the palm forest, and also the, the island of Prana, which is uh, hosting Valle de Mer, which is a tiny forest, primary forest, which is a UNESCO site. And uh, the project was intended to, to mitigate and adapt the area for future climate change. Also, we have an issue of coastal erosion and flooding on the low-lighting areas because the development mainly occurs on the coastline. And uh, because the flatland is really scarce in the country, you have more mountain than flatland on the coast. But there's a lot of pressure on the coastal land. And when it's raining, the water doesn't have space to flow before going to the sea. There's many construction, uh, human settlements, but also industries. It could be schools, all kind of uh, development occurs in floodplains. And this made a lot of impacts when it's raining. There's a lot of impacts in the low-lying areas because of the amount of water going there be be before it's going to the sea. And uh, there's a lot of water issues in terms of uh, drainage. So the drainage must be designed for floods. And uh, there's a lot of issue in regarding to that. And also coastal erosion on the other side because of sea level rise, but also because of sea reclamation. And that makes a lot of indirect impact. This is actually a very important point because you kind of touched upon what I really wanted to discuss. It is some climate change angle, but it's also the pressures of developed, developing countries and resources and land. Help us understand this entire picture, actually. This is a perfect time to talk about it. All right. Yes. So the, the problem is not just climate change, as you said. Climate change is more a global problem, but you also have the local issues that are increasing the, the climate change impact. And those are, in the Seychelles context, is more the urbanization, the artificialization of the land, especially on the coastline, and the, the reclamation of the land on the sea. Since 40 years, Seychelles has been reclaiming a lot of areas which has been destructing 1,500 hectares of corals. And those corals were defenses against uh, sea level and also storms. In the same time, there were also sand factories producing those ecosystems were producing sand for the beaches. So those are the root causes of the stress of coastal erosion. But then comes up the global climate change on top of it. But at the root of the stress is the, the population development, the urbanization, the reclamation, and all those factors you don't have anymore. Naturally, sand on the beach and protection against the, the storm events that are increasing now. So we have also another issue is the, the increasing number of invasive species on the vegetation, but also on the animal side. And those are also creating a new impact on the stabilization of the land and the ecosystems. It's also another issue that comes and have a negative impact on all those stress. Okay, Yuan, what is invasive species and how do they come? So invasive species are species that are not native from the, the island because Seychelles has been separated from the continent since 600 million years. So there's a lot of biodiversity that is what we call endemic to the island, such as the coco de mer pan. But there are many, many different plants and also animals. And those are really adapted to the context because it's nature who selected the species since uh, millions of years. And since the settlement of humans on the island, which has happened 250 years ago, a lot of 
species came in. The first was the human, but also rats. We have a lot of problems with the rats on the islands, but also in the terms of plants. A lot of plants were introduced by the humans in the past for several reasons. Could be agroforestry, for example. Seychelles was developing a lot the cinnamon industry and also coffee, cocoa, and for those. The government had to introduce some kind of trees that create shade, but are not natives. And those trees, we can say they really love the area. So those trees proliferate all over the island and then they take over the native species. And by doing that, they are changing the, um, the ecosystem balance. And so we also have to work on that. And a new kind of invasive now is the creepers. So they have been introduced essentially by people coming in the country with some um, exotic plants, ornamental plants, but then when they don't want to use them anymore, they just throw it in the environment. And because the environment here is very humid and, and hot, I mean, everything grows very well. Those creepers really infested the areas. And uh, the issue of creepers, they grow on the trees, they kill the trees, and so they change the stabilization of the soil. And when you have every intense rainfall, you have land erosion much more important because of those species. So there's a lot of work also to do, trying to restabilize the, the balance with the, the species on the ground. You know, I'm going to try and sum this up. Now, this is really a problem that you're describing it comes from three different sources. First is the local damage to the environment. So the issues around development, the issues around land reclamation, the issues around coral destruction, the issues around destroying the natural barriers that we have with the sea. Then top of that, you have the global climate change, which leads to increasing rainfall, long intermittent rainfall, so longer drying seasons leads to fires, reduction of water during certain seasons. And then we have a biodiversity problem on top of that. In helping people get that these three things come together is really important. It's not just about climate change against which we have no defenses. It is a combination of three problems, and we have to separate these out and approach these problems in different ways. I think that's kind of my summary. Yes, a very good one, yeah. So lovely. So let's just get on to what you really did. One important thing in your Adaptation Fund project was the ecosystem-based adaptation. Can you help us understand what you're trying to achieve? Yes, so the, the project was named Ecosystem-Based Adaptation to Climate Change. It's a project-oriented focus on human communities to be adapted to climate change using ecosystem and habitat. So this means that to help the country adapt to climate change, we have to use nature and especially the free of charge services that nature provides to be protected from land erosion, from droughts, and also from fire. So the issue was to try to understand how to work with nature to help us as a human on the island to survive on a long-term basis. You know, that's a very good overall approach. Before we get into more details, I would like to ask you, why is the ecosystem-based adaptation approach so important? And the IPCC distinguishes between what they call the hard and the soft approaches. And ecosystem is what you would call a soft approach. It's called also the no-regret approach. So I think helping people understand these words would be very important. Yes, so the approach was to use like what we call nature-based solution. I mean, the best way is to work with nature in the same direction of nature because nature is here before us and nature inspired us since the beginning of humanity. But 
nowadays with the modern societies we try to artificialize a lot of things and replace nature with technology and hard engineering and a lot of time we see that it's a lost battle because nature is always stronger than us and especially in the face of climate change when you talk about sea level rise it's really hard to fight an ocean it's a lost cause so the idea is to rely on what nature's provide for free to increase human resilience on the island and reduce the dependence especially because Seychelles also it's, it's really far from any continent it's 1000 kilometers from Somalia and even they are really dependent on importation on expensive technologies and fossil fuel just for example because the the project is focused on water resources the water resources on the island is provided the utilities is provided by desalination technology so where you have to take water from the ocean desalinate it with a lot of energy it's a lot of energy it's a lot of maintenance so the cost is very high and the quality of water is not that good compared to the water you can get from the rain that that flows from the top of the hill into the natural forest and the national parks where you have a really good quality of water so it's a balance between working with nature when you have free of charge service like potable water and Working with technology where you have to spend a lot of money on creating something that you could get for free. So the approach of the project is to try to minimize artificialize technology and try to work with uh, what nature provides in terms of technology. It could be plants, it could be natural material and try to fix problems just using nature and creating services, natural services that provide guarantee on the livelihood of the population. Again, very nice. And I think I'm going to ask you the in terms of project objectives, so to help us take these concepts that you have described, talk about the specific goals that you are trying to achieve in those two islands, those two specific places in the Seychelles. The objectives of the project was really focused on water resource. So some sites were chosen. We had seven sites. Five of those were watersheds, so focus on more on the hill, on the hillsides. So how to increase water retention in the hills to prevent flooding in the low-lining areas and also getting water storage, creating more water retention to get water all year long. And also there were two coastal sites really focused on the coastline and try to, to provide nature-based solution to prevent floods and also coastal erosion. So there was those two components of the project. One focus on the mountain, one focus on the coast. Both were connected because the what flows from the hill goes up down to the reef. Well, I'm going to try and sum up this a little bit so as to just help articulate the objective. Our objective is to use ecosystem-based adaptation. Ecosystem-based adaptation uses the nature to build human resilience to climate change. And that is really important because example of the desalination uh, that you mentioned you know, just helps people understand it very clearly. You know, desalinization technology is expensive. You, know, you need energy, you have to import the technology. Whereas using nature's mechanisms for purifying water right, from the rain, for example, is you know, so much cheaper. But to, to be able to use that effectively, you have to stop that human damage that you have created to the environment. You have to preserve or even reverse biodiversity so on and so forth. And that is why I think the ecosystem-based adaptation is so critical because, because it, you cannot fight nature, you cannot fight the seeds. So you have to use nature to be able to make humans 
survive in these sensitive environments? Is that a kind of high-level definition of uh, project objective? Yes. So the, the idea is to compensate the, the damage done in the past by improving the situation and uh, figuring out what possibilities do we have on the table with the landscape to see what we could do for the future to be more resilient. Great. So let's start from where you left and talk about the hill and the coast. What did you do on the hillside? I guess you must have done things like reforestation and so on and so forth. Help us understand the specific activities. Yes. So on the hillside, the idea was to, to split the activities into two subcomponents. One on the forest, just focus on the forest, how to make a forest more resilient. So in terms of biodiversity also, to, to regain more native species against the invasive, because we, we have a lot of forest degradation when we, we look at the, the forest itself. And also one component just focus on the water courses, how water circulates on the landscape. So from the, the source, the spring sources, the rivers, the wetlands, the mangroves, how those different aquatic ecosystems could be, could be improved to get more landscape regeneration and services for freshwater resilience. So on the river side, which was my work on the project, was to create a lot of water retention in the landscape, but not like we do. Human is like one big dam and uh, where you put all your effort in one side. The idea is completely different, is to split the efforts on the whole landscape to decentralize water retention everywhere, everywhere where the landscape provides you a small flat area where you can enlarge the river, create a, a small lake instead of a, a rivulet. So everywhere where we could do it and simply doing it not with concrete uh, work, engineering, just mimicking what nature does, using natural material like rocks, a bit of wood, a bit like the beavers does in North America, but doing it manually with the community, maybe adding a few gabions to stabilize, to hand the, the rocks, because when it's heavy rain, you have a lot of, uh, the, the current in the river is a bit strong. So you have to hold it. We use only natural material. And sometimes we had to add, but trying to minimize the, the artificial tools and the material. So we had to sometimes use gabions to stabilize, to, to hold all the rock together. But then we replanted on top of it just to make sure that on the longer term, it's the nature who will take over those structures by creating a native root system that hold on those rocks putting together, but that the community. And the idea was to create water retention ecosystem, habitats, and then nature take over the rest. I mean, when you, you just give a hand to nature, it, it's amazing how nature take it over to you and, and just provide you with a, a beautiful landscape. So the idea on the, the mountain side is, is, was just to work on the landscape to create a decentralized water retention system that when rains fall, more and more water is being retained in the landscape. So creating like natural sponges that would cool the air in the area and also provide a consistent water flow in the river. So there was these two activities, working on the forest itself, which is the, the rainforest, by recreating the natural setup with the natives and working on the river to try to enhance its storage capacity. And by doing that, also we were enhancing the, the living capacity of those habitats because you increase the water and water is life, as you know. So the, the objective was to to work in this direction. 
And we had also different sites. So we were doing that for farmers on some sites so they could get access to work. Those activities would make them understand how to hold the water in the landscape and also get the water in the dry season. And on other sites, it could be also for ecotourism activities. For example, we have this native forest, which is a UNESCO site on the island of Palin, which is really prone to fire. And if a fire occurs in, in one day, it could disappear. So the idea was to retain water and to have water storage for emergency use in case of fire. Because the context was that there was no access to water. So if there is a fire, the fire brigade could not have anything to do. Without water, you cannot extinguish the fire. So the idea, the idea was to adapt activities on the local context of each site. Great. And what do you do on the shore side? And so along the shoreline, uh, which the objective was more on the flood issues than the drought, we were really working on what was already there, the human infrastructure, which was sometimes badly designed for that. In the past, we, we used to design things really cheap, not really taking into account floods and extreme events. So the idea was to understand where we had infrastructural issues, like, for example, a road exposure wave, some drainage that we too small. Sometimes it's reclamation in the wetlands, in the mangrove. So trying to understand the setting up of those shoreline sites. Also talk with the community to, to try to find out how we could mitigate what has already been done, the damages, and using what we have left. So re regenerate the, the wetland ecosystem in the coastline, which is the mangrove, because uh, mangrove is really, really important for those communities to hold the flood water and also to hold the land erosion. So it's it's a really important um, habitat to preserve and also to work with because it's also beautifying the areas and also providing shelters for biodiversity, which is a livelihood also in the Seychelles to have uh, seafood and, and all those things. So the idea was to improve the, the quality of the wetland and the water going into the wetland and trying to maximize as much much as we could because sometimes you know a road you cannot under one project build a new road but it was to try to design a lot of uh, of bridges and culverts for floods right and uh, one of the things i realized that you had a certain thing that you had in mind when you thought about the project in the beginning especially in the coast side and then you had to change it based on the data that you saw is my understanding right and if it is then maybe you can explain a little bit about it Yes, you're completely right. It's true. The The project was designed 10 years ago, and uh, the idea was to, especially on the shoreland side, which is a road going around the island. So it's, it's a main road, and the road is exposed to, to erosion really, really hardly. And the idea of the project, when it was written, was to create an artificial reef outside the lagoon, which is at the side of the, the road, to make the wave break on the, the artificial reef, which is, which is not a bad idea. I mean, it's a good concept but the thing is it's a really first it's a really expensive work to do and before you engage work in in marine areas you have to understand the processes so the project started with this idea in mind to do an artificial reef but by doing those studies there on the ground like understanding the the coastal processes the oceanography in the area before engaging in, in any work we were understanding that it's a lost battle trying to do an artificial reef when we understand that we just understand to stop that when we realized that coastal erosion there was created by the lack of sand coming from the Victoria Bay, which has been reclaimed. And this is where we find out that 1,500 hectares of reef 
were destroyed in the in 30 years. So it only explained that the project maybe didn't know this information at the beginning. But when we started the project, we we, we find we could because adaptation fund projects are made in a way that you can have a um, a midterm review, and then you can change your targets and objective, adapting from what you you understand on the ground. But yeah, the project has to change the objective there, and and, and not going into this artificial reef because it would have been a waste of money at the end of the way. Great. And then come to the end of this project activity section. From what you were describing, it seemed to be you had to work a lot with the farmers and the communities to increase awareness and indeed helping them participate in the project. Could you just help us understand what exactly that meant? Yes, we had a, a strong component on community engagement. It's true. In the in the project team, we have one officer in charge of community engagement. It was its its full time job, and the idea was to reach the community on the sites, also to have a, a national communication strategy, also to make the project also maybe upscale at the end. In the first year, we did a lot of public meetings in the districts where the project was intended to do activities because also the, the philosophy of the project was to it was a lot of, of budget to to spend locally and we wanted to involve the local contractors and local communities so that they could engage also in their work as a not just as a contractor but also as a member of the community and there was a lot of work by reaching them. So the first thing was to do surveys also to get their interest and their views about the project because the project was intended and designed to be held by them at the end. I mean, the idea was to hand over the project to the, those communities after the project. And so public meeting was done. Also, we did a lot of TV spots. After a few years, we created a Facebook page for the project, which helped also to gain a public interest in the project. But the, the really the key was to to engage public meetings with the farmers and create also committees for each site. So like local committees where they could meet and uh, they put their views on. And at the end was to create community-based organization for all those sites where they could get their own funding and continue the project in the long term. You know, as you're speaking, I'm visualizing the coming down from the hills to the coast. And one thing that I'm understanding is in the coast, for example, the communities would be both people who own hotels, right, or own commercial property, as well as fishing folks. You know, this must have been incredibly difficult to bring these two different communities together. Yes, especially the the private owners, because sometimes even on the forest side, we, where you have to to go into a forest, which is a private land, and sometimes it's owned by a foreigner also, a lot of hills in the Seychelles are already sold to foreigners and so sometimes before we engage in such a project we have to consult with them to get their approval of course legally but also to see if they are going to develop this land it's there's no way we go there and, and invest in a regeneration of native plants if then after they're going to cut it so the idea was to really contact them to, to also do a survey to see where is the public land the state land remains and and maybe prioritize work on state land and on the farmers and fishermen which is good already in Seychelles that you have fishermen's associations so it's it's easy to reach them and also they, they try to be a community and, and go in the same way together but farmers sometimes also you have you have like small uh, fighting in between farmers, small, like small traditional farmers against, you know, big business, farming business, which are a bit negatively impacting the water course and also 
the local farmers. So sometimes the project was really helping uh, traditional and local farmers to be together. And and now that the project ends, they really they, they stand strong as a community and they, they can slowly, I mean, it's a long-term process, but we we bring them together and now they, they have really more hope for the future as a as a community. So I'm going to try and sum up these activities in a few short sentences. Obviously, on the hillside, you try to rebalance the biodiversity problem that you talked about. And then you created these natural water storages. And I love the word that you use, you know, let nature take over, the maintenance storage facilities. On the seacoast, what you did was you tried to stop the uh, momentarily cheap construction, you know, very expensive construction for human habitation over a longer term. Trying to create the natural defenses by using a mangrove forest, for example, and, and helping preserve beaches, which is again part of the ecosystem-based adaptation approach that we talked about. In doing so, you had to work with communities, and you know you mentioned several mechanisms. But I also recognize that um, it is not easy to do so. So that's the way I'll sum up the specific, of course, the multiple-year project. So you must have done a lot of things. And then we would go to the long term. Do you think this project will be replicated in other parts of Seychelles? Yes, most probably because the, the project is a success. As a, as a pilot project was really seen as a success, especially for farmers providing water solution because farmers were affected by 20 years of issues for water, for irrigation. And really provide a, a very good and cheap solution. And also uh, the, the government is really looking into those nature-based solution, especially for the, the island of Pralin, which is affected by fire. So it, it's a, we really changed the, the mindset, especially for fire brigades. Now they have a special brigade being trained on, uh, now actually on, uh, on forest fire, which is a completely different uh, doctrine as a, a urban fire. So they really now have a, a new brigade in place. They are investing in uh, adapted uh, equipment to go in the forest and they are trying now to design infrastructure in the forest to hold water reserve all around to have also uh, common maps where people can communicate like people who work in forest and people who work in the fire brigade which are dif different specialties the government is really seeing it as the way for the future but in the same time it's is looking for funding to, to implement these on, on local scale. And uh, what I could say is that the project really, especially for the farmers, make other farmers jealous of being chosen by UNDP for this project. So we have pressure on the Department of Agriculture to duplicate this uh, for all the farmers in the island. But um, in a replication in other small island developing states, on that, I, I really wish uh, this could be done, especially in the region, the Western Indian Ocean region, the, the issues are a bit the same, for example, for Madagascar, for Comoros. And uh, what we've seen is that the solution that we, we implemented are really productive and profitable because they are really cheap. You just use what you have locally. The, the, the inputs you need is really minimal. So it's, it's a real good solution for... Uh, for the least developed countries, which are vulnerable to climate change, and especially for the small islands in the, in the region. But it could be anywhere in the world. I mean, it's those solutions are really, I mean, it, it could be adapted for, for all the climates and uh, all the 
all the different countries. But apart from that, uh, you know, what have you, for example, done specifically within the project, improved the chances of, of replication within Seychelles? So what we do is that at the beginning of the project, when we before doing those activities, we are really thinking about how to integrate uh, in a holistic manner the, the whole community, all genders and also the different the youth, especially the youth, but also the, the senior people because they have a lot of traditional local knowledge, which is really well designed for adaptation to climate change. And so the idea, we did a lot of different forums also in the ground with the, the youth council. And uh, every time we did, for example, on the river, because I was doing a lot of Gabian barrages on the rivers, we did a training with uh, local contractors because the idea was to to do more and more in the future. So we, we need to have a pool of contractors who, who knows how to do that. In the same time that we do a barrage, we make it as a training. And so the first barrage was a training for contractors. We trained eight contractors. So, and then on the second barrage, the idea was to only focus on the youth. So we involved from the beginning, the Session Institute of Technology, because they, they train students on masonry, carpentry, a lot of manual activities. And so we had the pool of the masonry students coming to do the, the Gabian barrages. So it was a win-win situation because the SIT had a new venture and they were really interested in like sustainable constructions. And at the same time, it was a winning for the project because we hadn't to do much expenses. We just had to provide them with transportation, snacks, drinks, but it was really cheap compared to a construction company because those are students. And also for those students in the future, because we really hope that it's going to be a mainstream to use those uh, low tech and very low-cost technologies. And we wanted that to be impregnate in the youth for the, the future. So we hope that this would help to, to replicate the, the methods that we had. And, and we also, in the same time, we, do, we did documentaries on the training. We put that on the YouTube, so advocating for those kind of activities. And uh, this helped a lot also to make people understand the project and know the project nationally. One thing that I'm particularly interested in understanding is, you know, the community groups that you put together and you brought together, understand the project activities and the, and the dynamics of the project, really speaking. Had this revived the project? And are people kind of meeting regularly and trying to take things to a new level, if, you, if, if I can use that word? Yes, especially for several sites. I mean, it's not, the different sites have different communities and, and so they have different dynamics. But uh, the project left uh, two sites really high and they felt really to be engaged in the long-term maintenance of those sites, especially for the farmers' areas. They really see the, the gain uh, on, on this. They are now registered as a community-based organization, so they can access now to, to grants, because there's a lot of, of funding available for community-based organizations. And they, the project trained them on how to do some bookkeeping activities. Uh, we, we trained secretaries, chairmen, vice chair, treasurers, so they could know how to function on themselves. And uh, so we have two sites like that that are continuing to meet every month. And they are also applying to get grants 
to continue and to even upgrade those areas because some of the areas have been done to to just uh, have productive rivers but now they want to do ecotourism activities around it like mountain climbing stuff that are not be designing the project before but now they add more and more on this so the project yes still continue and I, I think we we left something for a long term and and a trace like it's not a project with just the studies that will be in the shelf somewhere it's it's really a concrete activity in a concrete site that is providing a lot of benefit yeah for the the, the local community there you know which brings me to one question that i wanted to ask you what about the private sector the people who own the hotels the tourism infrastructure have you seen them getting involved in these activities and understanding the long-term implications to their business Yes, exactly. We, we've seen them, not in the beginning, really, because um, they were not really seeing the scope of the work on a large scale. But when they saw the results of what the community did by replanting and, and the attraction of the, the tourism on, in those areas, because creating more water retention landscapes, bring you some more birds, bring you some more biodiversity, which makes it attractive to tourists, to different kinds of activities like picnickers. But um, the hotels, which are really keen on getting more activities accessible to their clients, they show that as an input for the, to sell their, their hotel. And so now they are providing sponsorship. For example, for the, the small lakes, they are providing... Um, benches, table, they have fun available to help those community activities. And uh, also on the island of Pranet, they really see that uh, hiking in the mountain, it's, it's an activity for their clients. And so they invest in the maintenance of the trail, which is very important for firefighting to have access trail for the fire brigade. So in the same time, they are really helping the project for the long term. And some of them also supply firefighting equipments to the local brigade. So they are really keen on, on, on providing more. And um, also the private sector could be also involved in supplying the right tool and equipment in the country. For example, the Gabion cages, which are not accessible in the country. Now people are asking, where can I get some Gabion? I want to do a retaining wall to retain my land and, and prevent erosion. So now people want to do that on their own uh, land, property, but they, they want the equipment. So this opened a window for private sector also to, to supply uh, the right equipment in the country for sustainable development. So it's a, it's a good uh, involvement of the private sector, but it's something that takes a bit more time, but it's, it's starting now. Well, I'm trying to sum up what you said. And, you know, I think one of the words that, uh, for example, the Green Climate Fund uses is paradigm shift. And I think, you know, some of the ways that you're trying to create the paradigm shift is to train contractors, increase their capacity, train us who have like 25, 30 years of working life. And uh, not only that does that reduce the cost of implementation, just invest so much in an entire new generation. And then you try to build community-based organizations and through communication and bringing people together. But I'm also getting the sense that for a pure paradigm shift to happen, these community-based organizations and these private sector companies and the government will have to keep pegging away at it, so as to speak, right? You know, for example, the funds that go to the community-based organizations, you know, they should use it for adaptation purposes 
the private sector has to keep working with uh, with these community-based organizations and keeping the forest trails alive and so on and so forth. It will take time, but I guess the beginning has been done. Yes, yes. The beginning has been done. I mean, that the, we started to engage now in a, in a new way, which is a, not a short-term thinking. It's more long-term. And the government, I think, wants to go in that way. We, we Under the project, we design a new water bill, which would be the, the foundation of all those activities, like preventing land erosion, flooding, by implementing drought mitigation also at the same time. The problem, in fact, could become a solution. It's just to orient the activity towards sustainable practices, changing from fossil fuel energy, desalination, huge dam infrastructure projects are still in the pipeline. But what we show is that there's an alternative which is cheaper, which it's a beautiful example of what partnering with nature can yield. And when we see that in people's mind, especially the young people, but also I mean, normal people now, they, they see that there is an alternative way. Before, they couldn't see that. Now that people see it, they really want to go towards it and to run into that direction. But there is a legal context to change, and there's a lot of things still to change. The waste management needs to be also adapted. Conventional agriculture, this is a whole mindset that needs to be changed. And urbanization also which increase the climate risk. So it's going to take time, but we have started the new way, the new path. And now they, it's, a, it's just the beginning, but slowly we are going into the right direction. Well, we've understood so far, uh, you know, the project objective, the project philosophy, we've understood the activities, and we have just now understood the long-term project impact. We're going to end the podcast a little bit by talking about the practical issues of the project development. And Yuan, I'm going to start by asking you, this was about, this was implemented over six years. We understand the activities, but you know, just tell us a little bit about you know, what happened in the first, second year, and then what happened towards the end, you know, just in terms of project phases. Yeah, so the project development was over six years, the, the implementation at the beginning. So the, the first year, really the phases was to recruit the project team, to start understanding the context, and uh, to also go on the ground, reveal potential sites, because you have to, to start from zero. And so the idea was to also survey the community, to seek for you know local people which are leaders. Like you, you need to find out who's going to be your champion and who's going to be leading the community. So there was a lot of work on that side also to try to, to bring people together. And also bringing people together without having, with just dreams. I mean, you talk, you don't have anything to show for the moment because it's the beginning of the project. And me, my work was more to do surveys, so mapping those watersheds, so discovering what nature already have in place, discovering also pollution sites, to, to reveal also where we have to prioritize uh, efforts. So the beginning of the, the project is not much expenses. You have also to deal with the, the funding agency, which it is UNDP managing the, the funds. They really want you to, to spend every year the same amount of money. So we had to spend almost one million every year. Need to, to spend because you don't know where to spend and you don't want to, to also waste, I mean, the spending. So the beginning, the first phase was really to do in-depth studies, assessment, 
to understand also the land ownerships because before going into those big work, you have to really understand, have legal approval, community involvement. And then from doing all those steps, we could have a work plan for the second year and starting to, to have some trainings, which trainings to do, which intervention, which priorities. Well, so you have to, to adapt on local context and on, on also on the, the actualities. It could be like we had the COVID in also in, during the project, so we have to adapt from that. Following the objective like this, so the first, the first step was to really understand and, and where to, to do those uh, interventions. And then the second phase of the project is really to have those work on the ground. So we were doing those big works, interventions like earthwork with machineries and um, work in the forest with contractors so where, where we try also to, to regenerate the landscape and have ready the plants. So the second phase is really intervention, intervention. And then the third phase, it's continue to have studies to have after assessment where you can see the difference and really prove scientifically the results. Like what we, what we did is like we proved that in, after four years, the project increased biodiversity in some side by 300%. So you still have assessments to do towards the end of the project. And uh, the establishment then of the nature on those sites where you finish the earth work, you have a, a nice clean site, but there is no plant. So you have to replant and you have to establish, let the nature take over, like I was saying. And so luckily it, it happens very quickly in the Seychelles because we are in the equator, it's very humid and tropical. So you see the results very, very well and very quickly. After a few years, you already, it's it's all green again and and the water is clean and, and you have everything ready. And it's really amazing how nature really bloom after you you help it. And at the end, towards the end of it, the last phase was really to to find out exit strategy so that your project site doesn't really be abandoned. Now the project is going to the end, but it's being adopted by the community to have this long-term maintenance and uh, ownership. That was the different phases of the project. Which brings me to ask you, in adaptation projects, you know, how do you measure impact? So in, in our project, we measure the impact on the number of people we reach with the project globally. How many people were involved in the project? You can, it could be the trainees, it could be contractors. We also had to record all the different genders and each activities we did. So there's a lot of emphasis on gender impact. So we had to report on every time we did our activity, we record uh, the age of the people, the gender, so we, we can have a, a good impact assessment on the people themselves, so the community impact. Also, we measure the quantity of water we were supplying to farmers compared to before. It was easy in that project because before there was no water available for the farmers. So the, num the, the water supply, the number of people with more reliable water supply was measured. Also on the forest side, the, the hectares of forest, so the surface of forest that has been rehabilitated. We have the water storage capacity, so we could measure that. And also what we saw, and this was not really a target in the project, but an indication was the food production. The food production changed in the area because without water, the farmers couldn't really grow varieties of, of crops because they were just focusing on, on low water required crops, such as cassava and sweet potatoes. Now they could grow lettuce, tomatoes, chilies, a lot of different. So you see the difference on the local market. And this has been measured. And uh, on the long term, we want also to measure the surface of forest being 
burned by fires. So to, to have a reduced surface forest that has been uh, burned. So those are different like indicators that we can measure and, and see the impact of the project. Right. And then for a project of this size to develop, how long does that take? Sure. So for that project, especially because, well, it depends on the, on the funding agency. So this was a project funded by the Adaptation Fund. And so the Adaptation Fund, they have a process to select consultant to design the project. So the countries can uh, apply to have uh, assistance for adaptation projects. So they, they have like a call for proposal for different, pro- different countries and then countries ask for it. And then they, they go on, on, a, on a queue to get the funds well, when the funds are available. But before that, the project has to be designed. And so the, they have uh, access to a, just a little fund to pay for a consultant to design the project, to make a, a project proposal. And so for that project, the project proposal was done in 2012. So this is where you have a private consultant from an international consultant coming into the country, consulting with the government, the ministries, the farmers association, the, the different stakeholders. I mean, it could be the public utility corporation. I mean, the whole range of local stakeholders, the UNDP, which have a, an office in the Seychelles to see each and every one uh, needs and uh, how the project could be designed. And so the consultant designed the project in 2012. And I think that the document was done within six months. But then this is being uh, handed over to the UNDP, which transmit the document to the adaptation fund. When the adaptation fund accept it or not, that this one was accepted, it's then put it on a queue for the funding. But the funding is, is not always available right after the design. So for that case, the, the funding was needed. I mean, the go-ahead was given two years after, so in 2014. But because the adaptation, they, they doesn't have a, an office in the country, they handed over the project to the UNDP office in the country. And so it's the UNDP who was managing the funds, but the funds were not from the UNDP. So UNDP was just managing the fund when the project was implemented by the ministry within the Seychelles. So it's a bit, uh, maybe it's a large picture, but you have many different stakeholders managing the, the fund in the project. So the ministry has to report to the UNDP and also to the adaptation fund. Right. So it takes about two, three years for the project from the initial project concepts to, to start of the project. That's why you mentioned right at the beginning that a lot of things change in 10 years, right? Uh, for example, you thought of the, of the artificial reef 10 years at the initial time, but when it came to actual implementation, that had changed because of the time taken, I guess. You know, which brings me to one question, which is if there's one thing that you did not expect during the project implementation, what was it? Something I did not really expect in the project was to manage the lack of legal backing for the project. The project really had to sometimes go around the laws because sometimes there are constitutional laws in the country, but nature sometimes, legally, goes after people. And if you want people to, to be adapted in a natural way, you have also to give back rights to nature and to rehabilitate nature against a human uh, in negative impact. So sometimes we had to really manage the lack of legality in the work around ecosystem rehabilitation. And th- that was not expected. I mean, we lost uh, one year at the beginning like that because uh, we had to go toward private landowners who were affecting the ecosystem. And we, as a government pro- project, we have to really come in and back natural courses, like the water courses, 
to rehabilitation. But sometimes you have also to, to deal with legal aspects. But afterwards, also something that we did not expect is the, the people's support around those rehabilitation activities. A lot of recreational uses up very quickly after the work. I mean, during the work, nobody were really interested with, with what we were doing. But just right after, people comes in and really it's crowded with local people coming here to do picnics, to do pictures. They, they really, there's a demand for such a project in the country. That we, we did not really expect that. And my final question, which is that um, if there's one advice that you'd offer to other project implementers of the adaptation fund type of projects, what would that be? My advice to other project implementers would be that from the beginning, they should involve in the local community a lot. So especially in communication, communicate with the activities, the project activities, because sometimes a lot of projects can be done, but without any communication, nobody knows what you are doing. It's really a shame because if you are doing something positive, it's it's more even more important than to communicate what you are doing than doing it. <laughs> Sometimes, because the, what you want is really your project to be upscaled on the national level. So the communication is something really important. Really invest massively in communication. And also something important to answer a question at the end also of the project. What did you do with the money and everything? Is collect data all the way to show the progress. I mean, it could be biodiversity data to show the benefit for the biodiversity, but it, it should be, it could be data or it could be water supply data, human settlement data, but you need data collection just to compare to show the results. Otherwise, reporting at the end would be difficult. Yeah, massive investment in communication. It's really important. And if people from other um, small island developing states want to get in touch with you, and learn more about this project, how should they? So I'm available on my email. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. We are present on the Instagram, the Ecosystem-Based Adaptation Project in the Seychelles. So I'm available on the on the social media. And uh, people can come to our page and see the Ecosystem-Based Adaptation to Climate Change in Seychelles on the Facebook. It's the, the Facebook page of the project and you can see all the activities done and there's a lot of access to material there, videos, documentaries and, and pictures. It's it's a very good one. And you can also interact with us. There is a, a chat box there. So we are really welcoming everyone to, to ask anything there. So with that, thank you very much, Yvonne. It is wonderful. Not every day do we get a chance to speak somebody from Seychelles. So I'm really thankful for you to uh, accept our invite and come here. And I think the topic of adaptation, you know, to be honest, you're the first person we have hosted who has actually implemented an adaptation fund project. But I hope you'll not be the last one. And I think this is so important for all of us to know. Yes, I really thank you guys to, to make the effort also to make a good podcast and to reach me and giving me the chance to upscale also the communication of the project uh, overseas and, and I hope really in the future we'll see many more projects like this. I really am thankful to you guys. Thank you. On that note, thank you very much. Follow me on LinkedIn, Medium and Twitter to get fresh international perspectives of what people across the world are doing in this decade of climate action.